Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Mike Pence and Donald Trump went over to the MLK Memorial, stood there for literally less than two minutes, and turned around and left. Okay, we've done our little bit. I wanted to uh, spend this first hour today talking with my old friend and co-author the book's Legacy of Secrecy and Ultimate Sacrifice, Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, Robert Kennedy, National Security, The Mafia, and the Assassination of Martin Luther King, Lamar Waldron. Lamar is a political commentator, JFK historian, the author of numerous books, his most recent one, Hidden History of of Watergate, isn't it, uh, uh, Lamar? Actually, that was the... Next to last, the newest one is The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. There you go. Welcome back to the program. Great to be with you again, Tom, especially on a day like today, given what you just said, which I hadn't heard yet, and given what's going on with Trump and William Barr and just all this stuff, and this article we're going to talk about that was on CNN last week that just, you know, it's like everything old is new again, and just when we seem like we're making progress there are all these roadblocks, horrible things that keep on happening. Yeah, and then over the weekend we see these MAGA-hatted young white kids from a Catholic boarding school apparently in Kentucky who were harassing a Native American after they had been harassing a group of black people. I mean, you know, it's like, whoa. You know, increasingly I'm thinking that these MAGA hats are the new clan hoods, you know. But to this, what do uh, Martin Luther King's assassination and Trump's Attorney General William Barr have in common. And let's hope he might not be confirmed. Of course, he probably will be confirmed, because a lot of people wouldn't think, well, what on earth could they have in common? You know, King died in 1968. Barr, you know, really became to prominence in the early 90s, as first an assistant attorney general, then attorney general. But what they actually have in common, really big time, is secrecy in secret government files and, and cover-ups. Hmm. Because part of the Trump playbook, which is the Putin playbook, of course, the, uh, you know, the Russia Republicans, they just try to throw so much stuff out there and literally to mentally exhaust people. So a lot of people I know, good liberal and conservative and middle-of-the-road people, they've just given up because there's just so much out there. So this story didn't get nearly the attention it would have gotten in the run-up to Martin Luther King Day if we didn't have a shutdown government and all this other stuff. People should definitely read it for themselves You know, later on this evening. It's titled, Inside the GM Plant, Where Nooses and Whites Only Signs Hung. And this isn't some historical article. This is current. This is now. In fact, there was another sign that was just found, I think, just just last week there. And basically, at this GM plant in Toledo, Ohio, this this powertrain plant, some restrooms were said to be, black people were told, oh, these are whites-only restrooms. There were nooses left, not once, not twice, but several times. And I'm going to just read some stuff right out of the article here. Black supervisors, and these are supervisors, well-educated men earning six figures, were denounced as boy, ignored by subordinates. Black employees were called monkey. Go back to Africa. What you were just saying about those students in Washington, you know, that same kind of taunting, and of course, lots of use of the N-word. Black employees were warned that one white colleague's daddy was in the Ku Klux Klan. White workers were shirts with Nazi symbols underneath their coveralls. Uh, so a lawsuit was filed, and GM basically just went through the motions. When nooses were left multiple times, 
when there was like only like one black guy working in a particular area. So the noose was clearly meant for him. Instead of really doing anything about it, GM said, we're just going to take out the rope and replace it with wires or, or chains or something. Yeah, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a... You mean they were going to take the rope out of the factory so that the white guys couldn't make it into nooses anymore? Right, right. That, that was GM's idea of doing this. Wow. And, and, you know, and, and the local UAW president, and, and I'm a big union supporter. My dad headed a UAW local here in Atlanta back in the late 50s, early 60s. It's a white guy who's worked there for 34 years. His comment was, do I believe people are a little too sensitive these days? Absolutely. Well, that makes no sense. There were police reports filed. Luckily, the Ohio Civil Rights Commission looked into it. They did a nine-month real investigation, not a whitewash, and their director of regional operations said uh, racist behavior was so prevalent at this Toledo plant that she'd rank it among the worst cases her team had ever seen, and incidents continued while everyone knew the commission was investigating. And she wow. rejected GM's defense that they had taken appropriate action. So, bottom line here, several important things, and it leads right to camp. And, and then this parallels some of the experiences you had in Atlanta at a GM plant. Exactly. Back in the so, 60s. You know, factories, by the way, are dangerous places. You know, one shove in the wrong place and somebody's dead, right? And I do want to say, I don't think GM is any more or less racist than many large corporations or many large factories. I noticed in the sidebar of the CNN article, there were two things. GM raises its profit forecast stock jumps, and another article, GM has barely paid federal taxes for years. But the thing is, when you have these big corporations more concerned with profits than taking care of their workers, protecting their workers, stopping horribly overt racism, and, and again, I, I worked at GM back when I was in college. I worked part-time. My dad retired from GM. And so I was working at a GM plant here in Atlanta called the Lakewood plant, uh, kind of the southeast of Atlanta, really, you know, still in the city limits. And, and so I saw racism there firsthand myself, the same kinds of things. One of the women who was talking to one of the supervisors in Toledo was later sent something calling her an, an inward lover, right? Back when I was working at GM, back in the early 70s at the same plant, a few years after King died, I, I heard about this. I didn't witness it, but everybody said it happened. A woman was seen talking a lot at lunch with a, with a black co-worker, and a bucket of urine was placed over a door that they knew she would have to pass through. Things like that were common. Uses of the N-word were common. This is stuff you, you experienced. So how does that relate to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King? At that very plant, just a few years earlier, while my father was working there as a supervisor after he had left being a UAW leader, uh, chairman there, that plant was where the money was raised from the racists there, who may have only been, what, 10% or so, but still, that's where the money was raised to pay for the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. So when GM didn't check that racism back then in the 60s, look what that led to this horrible thing and why instead of celebrating with a i forget how old he would be today 90 year old yeah. martin luther king we're celebrating this holiday of a man who died more than 50 years ago because of that unchecked racism there so i say it's just so ironic that that article came out last week and yet it got almost no national real attention and, and yet it should. Yeah, because this is incredible. So where does James Earl Ray fit into all this, Lamar? Well, so, so here, here's what was happening. At that GM plant, that became kind of ground zero. You know what blockbusting is, right? Yeah, but let's describe it for our listeners who don't. Uh, most people under 40 or 50 don't know. So blockbusting was where for a long time in Atlanta, like most major cities in the South and, and many in other parts of the country, blacks were only allowed to buy houses in certain areas. Well, by the mid-60s, that was changing. And Atlanta had like five or six real estate firms that had a monopoly. Uh, one of them has a, has a background of Georgia's current senator, Johnny Isaacson, used to run an office of theirs. But so, so they had a monopoly. And so they decided, well, if we're going to have to sell houses to blacks, we can make lots of extra money on this. We will scare the white people out and sell cheap buy their houses cheap, and then sell them high to black families. So they, I mean, it's just ridiculous, and we don't have time to go into it in detail, but they, they would use these horrible scare taxes to force this. Well, that General Motors plant, the Lakewood plant, was like middle-class heaven in the 50s and the early 60s. White middle-class heaven. 
If you were white, that was middle-class heaven. The shopping, you could walk to the plant, you go home for lunch. It was just, it was just wonderful. I mean, this generation had mostly grown up in the Depression, so this was great, right? Well, that became one of the first areas that was blockbusted. So suddenly, instead of a five-minute drive to work or even walking to work, going home, you only got 30 minutes for lunch, but if you lived five minutes away fine. You get to see the wife and kids. Instead of that, now you're on Atlanta's horrible freeways commuting who knows how long. But that anger didn't go to the real estate companies. The, the angers went to the black people, especially because there were four Georgia white supremacists in particular that would go around on payday every Friday and collect money. They would mainly do it to work against Martin Luther King once you were a regular contributor, you know, given two, three, four, five dollars a week, because these were great paying union jobs, right? Mm. Then they would say, you know, look, if you can kick in a little bit more, we've got a special fund that we're collecting money to kill Martin Luther King. And so that had been going on for several years by 1967-68. Now, they were actually taking this money. And they were buying undeveloped mountain land just across the border into North Carolina. So, in other words, so were, this was a get-rich-quick scheme that they were selling. They were using. We're going to kill King as the way to get the money, and then they were converting it to their own personal property. Exactly. And yet, they had to do something about King, and we'll talk about that when we come back. Right. Lamar Waldron is with us. Legacy of Secrecy: The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, Bobby Kennedy National Security, the Mafia, and the Assassination of Martin Luther King. So who were the guys who were raising the money to kill King? And at what point did they realize that they couldn't just take all this money and convert it into North Carolina speculative land, well, but that they'd have to actually use it to kill King? Well, the problem was, while there were early attempts to kill King, by 65, 66, there, there weren't any attempts. They figured somebody's going to take some shots, right? And we'll take credit. That wasn't happening anymore, mm. you know, because King was cautious and he had bodyguards and stuff, right? And plus there were other targets, you know, you had the Black Panthers and Huey Newton, and so you had, so it wasn't just King anymore. So they had figured somebody will take a shot, will say, hey, that was our guy, he barely missed. That wasn't happening. So their contributors, who, who included a lot of Klan members, John Birch Society members, white citizens, you know, and some pretty violent types, they were like, hey, you know, I've been paying this money. So what they had to do was hire someone, find someone who could at least take a shot at King, and preferably, because they were all racist, white supremacists, kill him. One was a guy who came up from South Georgia for these collections named Joseph Miltier. Joseph Miltier is famous and familiar to some of your listeners because he was caught on Miami Police Informant audio tape that you can still listen to today saying that this is two weeks before JFK was killed, saying that he, JFK would be shot from a building with a high-powered rifle and someone would be picked up quickly to throw off the authorities. Wow. And he's, so clearly Miltier was at least knowledgeable about JFK's assassination. And when he talked about a plot to kill King back then on tape. So flash ahead, Miltier is one of these guys making money. An inside guy at the plant named Hugh Spake was another guy, you know, because he, he worked there. So, you know, all mm -hmm. these guys trusted him. So, and then there was a, an attorney and a dentist. Okay. So those were the guys. So Miltier had white supremacist contacts with everybody, with Venable, who headed the Ku Klux Klan, J.B. Stoner. But he didn't want to use those contacts because they could cut, those people were his friends, right? So he wanted to get somebody that could not be traced back to his white supremacist buddies. So there were a couple of house painters approached. That didn't work. They were looking for a hitman, you're saying? A hitman would be great, but at least somebody who could take a shot. Right. So he didn't even have to be an experienced hitman. The two house painters were crooks, or had I think they had criminal histories, but, you know, they... They weren't hitmen, but, but like I say, you just got to have somebody to take a shot they can take credit for. So Miltier turned to an old associate from 1963 in the JFK assassination named Carlos Marcello. According to FBI files that the FBI ignored in their own 2000 review of the King case, Carlos Marcello did not accept the contract, but he brokered the contract to someone else, okay, to one of his underlings. And so James Earl Ray had broken out of prison uh, less than a year before Martin Luther King was killed. And he was on the run. He didn't have a lot of money. He traveled all over America to, to Canada, to the uh, swanky resort up there, down to Mexico, to Los Angeles and back, and to New Orleans. Just, I mean, a ridiculous amount of travel 
for a rogue, barely educated guy, but he was a low-level drug runner and gun runner for Carlos Marcello's organization. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. We're talking with Lamar Waldron. Okay, so Lamar, just to recap, these guys were raising money to kill King down in, uh, in the GM plant where you and your dad used to work near Atlanta. They were stealing the money and converting it to their own interests. Eventually, the pressure built up to the point where they had to hire somebody to kill King. They go to Carlos Marcello, the guy who brokered the, the murder of Kennedy, and say, you know, can you hire a hitman for us? He brokers that out to somebody else. And at that point, James Earl Ray, who's been bouncing around the country for about a year after he broke out of prison, traveling to Mexico, to Canada, and whatnot, James Earl Ray gets roped into this. Pick it up from there. And and, and I I do want to give credit. A couple of researchers built on our work, uh, Stuart Wexler and Larry Hancock, uh, in their book, Killing King, and they were able to find information. The contract eventually had two parts to it. One was for a spotter, and that would get you X amount of money. You would get two or three times that amount of money to be the actual shooter. But so that way, you know, the actual shooter, he could just come on the scene at the last minute because it would be the spotter who wasn't going to get his hands dirty with a gun, right, who could track King, let the, the shooter know, you know, when he's in position or going to be in position. So now Ray had no real history. Ray, he didn't just have any, except when he was a military police in the late 40s. He never shot anybody. He never killed anybody. He was not a violent person. He was like a crook, a thief. And he was a drug runner for Carlos Marcello and a gun runner. By the way, he had a mixed Ray's partner, and also hung out with the mixed race partner's black female cousin. So James Earl Ray was racist, but he was no white supremacist like, say, Joseph Miltier, no matter what you read, okay? So Ray apparently got into the plot. By the way, they put out the contract in prisons, including the one that Ray broke out of, because they wanted an ex-con, because an ex-con would know two things. Number one, he would know how to keep his mouth shut, that you can be killed even in prison, right? right. And, and also, he would be a logical fall guy. You know, there was, you know, once you find an ex-con with a record, there's no reason to look for anybody else. Okay, he's an ex-con. He must be racist. He did it, right? So, so Ray got involved. Now, the big question is... Did Ray fire the shot that killed Martin Luther King? Or was he the spotter? Or was he the spotter? We can say with scientific certainty that we can't say that for sure, that Ray killed King. There is no way to prove that scientifically. He could have been the spotter. He could have been the spotter who decided at the last minute that King was getting ready to leave Memphis. But in either case, he was take that shot. He was there and in the midst of it. He was, right. he was the guy who got the contract. Okay. Now, 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 I want to bring this back to William Barr, to George Herbert Walker Bush, and let's flesh out the killing of King as well. So we've got James Earl Ray going off to kill King, funded by these guys at this uh, GM plant in Georgia, where coincidentally you and your dad both worked. What does this have to do with William Barr, who Trump wants to make his attorney general, and George Herbert Walker Bush? How do they tie into the assassination of Martin Luther King? Well, let's look at what happened right after King was killed. James Earl Ray escaped to Canada. But first, he came all the way back to Atlanta. If you look at a map, Memphis is much closer to Canada than Atlanta is. You know, Atlanta is south of Memphis, and so uh, south, uh, uh, east of Memphis. And it's, it's many hundreds of miles out of the way. For some reason, Ray comes back to Atlanta. He parks his... his well, this is where his paycheck was, isn't it? Well, that's what he thought. So people are going to help him escape. So he parks his Mustang, I think, about seven blocks away from Dr. King's office 
and just a few blocks away from the heavily guarded Georgia State Capitol, where our racist governor, Lester Maddox, thought black people were going to overrun it and kill him because King's dead. And so that makes no sense. He then winds up in Canada. Well, you might ask how, you know, especially when he ditched his car at a housing project. Uh, does he get to the bus station? Uh, the FBI interviewed every cab driver, every bus driver. Nobody took him. Well, we now know, and it was because he called Hugh Spake, one of the four people at the General Motors plant. But Spake was working on the assembly line, and, and I knew from my time there, and I always knew from my father, you don't stop that assembly line, right? Except it's, it's an emergency, you have to have a relief man. So basically, Spake was like, I can't help you with this. You have to get some, you know, one of our other partners. And so Joseph Miltier. The, the well-known white supremacist, you know, later wrote a friend and said, oh, yeah, yeah, when James O'Ray was in Atlanta after King, yeah, I, I, was, I was right there. So Miltier gets him to the bus station. Ray then goes to Canada, then to England, then to Europe, then back to England where he's apprehended. He has a series of attorneys, all of whom had white supremacist or mafia ties, pleads guilty to save his life. Three days later, tries to withdraw it. And so, so that's where he winds up. Now, let's flash ahead. After Watergate, we're in the mid-'70s now, okay? And there's a new investigation. People are tired of Watergate, uh, unfortunately, because all this ties in, but they didn't realize at the time. And there's something called the Church Committee that's investigating. There's also Senator Frank Churches. And they're Frank Church, and they're investigating CIA abuses and assassination plots to kill foreign leaders. There's also the little-known Pike and Nedzi committees in the House. So both houses of Congress are trying to investigate and root around all this stuff. The CIA begins to withhold a lot of material from both houses of Congress. Now, who should become CIA director in the midst of all this? And by the way, there are a couple of murders of potential congressional witnesses by the name of Sam Giancana and Jimmy Hoffa in the middle of this, and another one's going to wind up in an oil drum, Johnny Roselli. So who should become CIA director in all this but George Bush, the guy I call George Bush Sr. And so he becomes CIA director, and they just start withholding massive amounts of information, mostly about JFK's assassination, but a lot of this also touches on Martin Luther King's assassination, because the CIA is withholding Marcello's work, uh, files about that for the CIA, Marcello's associates, Ray's international travels, because he did a lot of them in 67 and 68, Ray's uh, and their associates international uh, drug trafficking and, and Miltier and Ray's uh, associates in gun running because a lot of the market for running guns was CIA back to Cuban exiles. So Bush needs help. You have to have people in the CIA, and you do, called the legislative councils that help you decide what you should give to Congress and to find you legal reasons not to give other things to Congress. Well, guess who becomes Bush's CIA assistant legislative councils? Who's that? William Barr. Oh. Now, how does William Barr have a... So, so William Barr, the guy that Trump wants to be the attorney general, gets a job working for George Bush Sr. for the CIA as their lawyer. He's the CIA before. Get this. In 73, Barr got his master's in governmental studies and Chinese studies. Bush had been, before becoming CIA director, essentially the U.S. ambassador to China. He actually had a different name because... Yeah, the title was trade representative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you had Bush, who had just been the essentially the ambassador to China for uh, more than a year, and now you've got this guy, this, this hotshot attorney, uh, you know, who, who's got this master's in Chinese studies, I, I believe from Columbia or someplace like that. And, and so, you know, so apparently they hit it off then. That's when they first start working together at the same time when Bush's CIA is withholding massive amounts of information about JFK's assassination and some information about Martin Luther King's assassination. So the pattern that we're going to talk about next of all this withholding that also went on in the late 80s, early 90s, actually got started in the mid-1970s when, when the CIA is withholding all this information from Congress. With William Barr and George Bush, with senior. So, George Bush. So uh, even with all those withheld files, what did Congress conclude about King's murder? So Congress, uh, they, they, they eventually got the House, after Roselli wound up in the oil drum, after he had testified to the Senate, before he could testify to the House, uh, they had formed the House Select Committee on Assassinations. They concluded that King was most likely killed by a conspiracy and that James Earl Ray acted for money. So even with all the withheld files, they got that in, and they, they 
turned up lots of other great information that they only got pieces of that we now can tell the whole story, you know, about the drug running and the gun running and all like that. So Bush, on the other hand, you know, he goes from being CIA director to vice president of thanks to, you know, something you probably know more about than I do, which is the October Surprise. And then he almost became president, of course, in 1981, when Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. Yeah, and and there was some connection between Bush and Hinckley's family. And and, and let's clarify that, because I I wasn't as clear as I I should have been the last time we talked about Bush back in December. The the, the YouTube that I have to thank all of your listeners, you know, has over 100,000 views. But, But it was... Um, when 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 Hinckley shot Reagan, it was Bush Senior's son Neil Bush, later involved in the savings and loan scandals, right. who had planned to have dinner with Hinckley's brother the next day because uh. the Bush and the Hinckley families were together. Uh, a, a, a good writer by the name of Russ Baker said that Hinckley's before the shooting, Hinckley's uh, oil company. Uh, Hinckley Sr.'s oil company was looking at a $2 million fine from the Bush-Reagan administration. Yeah, that kind of went away, too, after the shooting. So, so anyway, so I just want to clarify that point. Yeah. So now we get into, and again, you know lots about this, uh, to Iran-Contra and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and by the way, Iran-Contra involved a lot of the same anti-Castro-Cuban exiles that Bush protected in the mid-70s, when William Barr was one of his assistant legislative counsels. Others- this, is, this is some of the, the Cuban exiles who were involved in the assassination of Kennedy, or involved in Watergate, anyway. Well, they were involved in Watergate, they were involved in narcotics trafficking, they were certainly linked to people who were involved in JFK's assassination, but because they were protected and not exposed in the mid-70s, why, they were available to, to, to just like the old 1960s again, you know, in the, when the CIA spent tens of millions of dollars a year on these guys. So, so that's what Iran-Contra was. Again, a lot of these Cuban exiles had started working for the uh, Florida drug lord, Sinotrafficante. They, of course, kept doing the drugs while they were doing Iran-Contra. So, really. Right, and the confluence between this and the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King is that many of these same people were involved in these? Well, exactly. In other words, the, the, so, so, so Congress wanted to pass an act, and, and of course that act would have covered people like Carlos Marcello, former CIA asset, who brokered the thing, and Joseph Miltier, because of course his, his recorded stuff about JFK just before the JFK was killed. So in other words, while it wasn't specifically designed for King, a lot of people knew, yeah, there, there's, yeah this is going to get us some stuff that's going to help with the King assassination, too. However, Bush, and from, from accounts I've read, Barr, they did not want this act. In fact, Bush pushed out some files. He said, look, here's a bunch of CIA files. See, I've got nothing to hide. Here's a bunch of CIA files. And I'm sure some young guy at the CIA said, yeah, these are old, who knows what they say, we don't. Pushed them out. Guess what? because of a guy by the name of uh, John Newman, a former Army intelligence major who was at that time an assistant or associate professor of history at Maryland. John Newman knew what those files said, and, I, and when I went to talk to Newman and s- told him what you and I had uncovered from you know, some of the two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy you and I interviewed, yes. he said, oh, that sounds like AM World. The, all these files Bush pushed out, yeah, there's some AM World. And he was dead on right. So Bush, without meaning to, actually put out some good stuff, but most people, and we couldn't even talk about that in public, you know, for, for over 10 years. Yeah. But so bottom line is, the JFK Records Act was passed in 92, while Bush was president, Barr was attorney general, unanimously. So even though Bush had opposed it, he had no choice but to sign it. But get this, he didn't put it into effect. He was supposed to appoint a distinguished, objective panel to start going through the files, but he didn't. So he had to wait another several months until Bill Clinton came into office. Then he finally appointed those people also. So in other words, the act was in force while Bush was in office for at least another two and a half or three months. Right. So I want to get back to William Barr and his cover-ups and George Bush and this whole connection to the Martin Luther King uh, killing. And also ask if this is probably how William Barr is going to be protecting Donald Trump. So, Lamar, I published a piece on Alternet last week frankly, I was surprised it didn't get more circulation about how in 1992, Christmas Day, in fact, or the day before the Christmas Eve, the independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, that was what they called special prosecutors back then, or the the equivalent, had subpoenaed 
private papers, private diaries that George Bush Sr. had. And that had to do with the whole Iran-Contra thing and, you know, whether he was involved in 1980 in the, in the effort to, to hold the hostages, whether he was involved a little later in the selling of weapons to Iran, although actually the delivery of spare tires via Israel had started, as I recall, with Iran right around the time of, of Reagan getting sworn into office. Barr, at that time, was engineering this cover-up by encouraging George Bush Sr. to pardon Casper Weinberger and five other people. That pardon shut down Walsh's investigation. Walsh went to the New York Times, screaming headline across uh, three quarters of the whole front page. Prosecutor alleges cover-up. Uh, Bush pardons six. That was Christmas Day. Look at the New York Times, 1992 for Christmas Day. It'll blow your mind just looking at it. It was Bill, William Barr who did that, Bill Barr who did that. So. By doing that cover-up, by having Bush pardon these guys, he basically kept George Bush Sr. out of jail. Uh, you know, not to mention Casper Weinberger and these other five. Exactly, because they would have been in a position to not only testify against Bush, but as your article points out, the diary, Bush's campaign diary from back in the 1980 campaign, I mean, Bush was going to be a star attraction in Weinberger's trial. So in other words, you know, Bush was going to be tarred, you know, and feathered. It was going to be almost impossible not to prosecute Bush. Right. Barr eliminated that. Barr got that all out of the way for and, Bush. And by the way, Barr had been stalling and stonewalling before that, as your article points out, and he had been stalling and stonewalling the special prosecutor on the pardons. I, I love this. William Sapphire, one of the most famous journalists in the 1990s, who was a Republican journalist, by the way, former speechwriter for Nixon and Agnew, he, this Republican, referred to Barr not as the attorney general, but instead as the cover-up general. Right. I love that line. In an op-ed, in, in, uh, as I recall, in October of 92, yeah. Oh, right. and, and, and see, that's, that's exactly when the JFK Act was passed. The most single important things that Barr and Bush could have released would have been to tell the American public, oh, by the way, you know, the FBI, we got the files for the Justice Department, you know, the Attorney General controls the FBI, right, supposedly. And Carlos Marcello confessed in front of two witnesses to having killed JFK, and we have hundreds of hours of tape of Carlos Marcello on which he's talking about aspects of the assassination, and for all we know, also about aspects of the King assassination. And wow. they didn't release that. And that, that, stuff, that stuff is still buried to a large extent. To a large extent. I mean, I've got 100 pages, but those transcripts and tapes are still buried to yeah. this day. Yep. We're talking to Lamar Waldron. Lamar and I wrote a book called Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, Robert Kennedy, National Security, the Mafia, and the Assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. They are one of the most dangerous drug cartels in the world. Drugs come in, money goes out. But this is not like any drug lord you've ever seen. This Wednesday, WGN America presents the new original series, Cure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. You, Pastor Funk, are going to take down the entire mob all by yourself? I will die before I bring that poison into my community. The series premiere of Pure, this Wednesday at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. Available on Dish, DirecTV, or check your local cable listings. Lamar, I understand the King family sued and that the, the outcome of that lawsuit was proving that there was some government involvement with the King assassination. Again, it's complicated, but, but bottom line is, yes, the judgment found that, and this was Judge Joe Brown was presiding, that, that King was killed by a conspiracy. Now, there was nobody presenting the other side, so it was, it's kind of a one-sided thing. But I got to tell you, Carlos Marcello showed up a lot a lot in that trial. So after that happened, um, Clinton was president, Janet Leno, Reno was attorney general. There was a lot of pressure to relook at things. And so there was a Justice Department report in the year 2000 that supposedly brought in some kind of outside guy to do a new look at things. But guess what? That Justice Department report that should have focused a lot on Carlos Marcello, because he was mentioned a lot at the trial. Because he brokered uh, the King assassination. Right. Uh, get this. Mar Marcello's mentioned like two or three times in this long report, and the report ignores the Justice Department's own files in two big ways. The, 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 the FBI file I, I told you about that I have copies of now, it's a legitimately released file you know, that says Marcello brokered it for, for a group of you know, uh, Southern white supremacists, that contract. They didn't even quote that. And get this, 
there was a secret Justice Department investigation of Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968 because black leaders in the South, especially those with King and Memphis, uh, all, all the white, did not trust J. Edgar Hoover, a notorious racist, or the FBI. They did trust the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So there was an entire secret investigation that, that, that we know about both from a few FBI files that, that talk about it because they resented it, and, and, and some other uh, inf- you know, people that provide information to it. The, those files, guess what? The secret Justice Department investigation of Martin Luther King's assassination, that wasn't released or even referred to in that 2000 Justice Department report. So, so is that, is, Are those files still hidden? Largely, yes. Yeah, there. I mean, like I said, I've got the one about the brokering, but that's like one document in what to me was clearly a series that would have follow-ups and the secret Justice Department report. Yeah, we. I mean, well, they they didn't do a report. They 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 were doing an investigation and then they they had stopped the investigation. And so, but but they all the stuff they accumulated never released. There's so much stuff when when F, when the FBI heard about that. Uh, Miltier talking about JFK's murder and the King assassination plot two weeks before Dallas, uh, Atlanta FBI agent was asked to investigate immediately because you know JFK was going down to Florida then to Texas and so this guy uh, named Donald Adams FBI agent he 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 went down to Quitman in South Georgia he did all this investigation worked with the sheriff down there uh, they were there, I think there was a kind of you know black bag job to break into Miltier's house. That, that Adams did not want me to talk about while he was still alive. But, you know, the FBI did black bag jobs back then. You, you, and, you, you and, personally and, discussed this with Adams. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he's passed away now, so I can talk about the black bag job where he broke into Miltier's house looking for stuff. So he did a, a long report and rushed it back to Atlanta. Guess what? That report has never been released. Even Donald Adams, the retired FBI agent who wrote the report, he couldn't get a copy of it. Wow. And, and, and the FBI investigated every notorious racist, including J.B. Stoner, after King was killed to see where they were. Stoner happened to be across from an FBI office in Mississippi. But while Miltier was big on the FBI's radar screen, we don't have anything at all about the FBI looking into Miltier. Uh, James Earl Ray had a map with locations. Ray spent a lot of time in Los Angeles with his mixed race partner and and the and the partner's black um, female cousin. And Ray had a, a Los Angeles map when his rooming house was searched in Atlanta after King was killed. And and the map had just a few locations in Los, in Los Angeles marked on it. One of which happened to be the apartment of a guy by the name of Johnny Roselli, who was a oh, who, who ended a, up in the oil drum in the in Biscayne right, Bay. Who was in the we have we have one minute, Marcella. Lamar, to the end of the uh, the end of the hour here. Uh, you want well, to summarize and, and so, all this? So, bottom line is, there's a ton of of information the federal government is still withholding on Martin Luther King's assassination. And my big worry is that if William Barr is confirmed as Attorney General. We will never see any of that information. Well, is is it that we'll never see any of it? As in, he'll destroy it, or is it that you know it'll simply be you know kept on the QT for another well, two I, years? I, I, the problem is now it's buried so deep now. Um, in other words, you know, I, I think I think it was hidden from that 2000 Justice Department thing. You know, people are dying. People like Donald Adams are dying. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and so. Uh, you know, there the, are the, the, the FBI investigators who have this knowledge. Right, right, who can say, I wrote this report, you know, you know, you got to find it, or, or here's where we used to file the sensitive stuff. And so that's a difficult thing. I mean, it, it's weird to say, but I mean, the King files are vitally important, desperately important as of today. And the, by the way, there is a group, including Robert Kennedy Jr., Oliver Stone, and others, who just today are calling for a new investigation King's murder, JFK's murder, Robbie Kennedy's murder, and Malcolm X's murder. Amen. I think people should support that effort. Amen. Lamar Waldron, the book that Lamar and I wrote, Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, Bobby Kennedy, National Security, The Mafia, and the Assassination of Martin Luther King. Lamar, great talking with you as always. Great talking with you, Tom. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Legacy of Secrecy, The Long Shadow of the JFK Assassination, by Lamar Waldron and me. This is from the introduction. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, triggered cover-ups by officials uh, that continued to negatively impact American politics, life, and foreign policy. 
Legacy of Secrecy details those cover-ups and hidden investigations, many for the first time, including the reasons they were carried out under such intense secrecy. Most were spawned by John and Robert Kennedy's top-secret 1963 plan to stage a coup against Fidel Castro, a plan so highly classified that it only started to be exposed in 2005 and is fully, finally, revealed in this book. Their own confessions now show the three mafia bosses, Carlos Marcello, Santo Traficante, and Johnny Roselli, were behind JFK's assassination. They used parts of the secret coup plan to kill JFK in a way that forced Attorney General Robert Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and high CIA official Richard Helms to withhold critical information not only from the public and the press, but also from each other and sometimes their own investigators. It's important to keep in mind that JFK was murdered just a year after the tense nuclear standoff during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The main goals of U.S. officials were to prevent a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets and to protect JFK's ally high up in the Cuban government. Commander Juan Almeida, head of the Cuban army in 1963, still listed as Cuba's number three official today. While U.S. leaders have managed to prevent a confrontation with Russia and preserve a critical ally in the Cuban government, this limited the investigation into JFK's murder, allowing the three mafia chiefs and their associates to remain free. As a result, the long shadow of secrecy surrounding both JFK's murder and the coup plan set the stage for the murder of Martin Luther King, ultimately driving two presidents from office and bringing about the murders of five congressional witnesses in the mid-1970s. Legacy of Secrecy breaks important new ground in key areas, detailing for the first time Louisiana Godfather Carlos Marcello's clear confession to ordering JFK's assassination. Marcello's criminal empire ranged from Dallas to Memphis, and previously secret files at the National Archives have shown that he made this confession in 1985 to an FBI informant ruled credible by a federal judge <clears throat> as part of a secret FBI undercover sting operation named Camtex. Exposed here for the first time, Camtex yielded Marcello's admission that he'd met Lee Harvey Oswald and set Jack Ruby up in business in Dallas. The operation also generated hundreds of hours of heretofore secret prison audio tapes of Marcello discussing his crimes, recorded using the FBI informant's bugged transistor radio. Yet the FBI and Justice Department withheld most of that information from the public and Congress for years until its revelation in this book. Carlos Marcello wasn't the only mob boss who confessed his involvement in JFK's murder to a trusted associate. Legacy also uncovers important new information about Marcello's partners in JFK's assassination, Tampa Godfather Santos Traficante and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago Mafia's man in Las Vegas and Hollywood. Shortly before their deaths, both mobsters admitted their roles in JFK's murder to their attorneys. Two of their associates with documented ties to the secret JFK Almeida coup plan likewise confessed. Using exclusive new information supported by FBI files apparently withheld from Congress, this book names two of the Georgia men who paid James Earl Ray to kill the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, white supremacist Joseph Miltier and Hugh R. Spake. Miltier, who had been involved in Marcello's murder of JFK, was part of a small clique of racists in Atlanta who used Marcello to broker the contract to murder Dr. King. We document James Earl Ray's ties to Marcello's heroin smuggling operation and long overlooked evidence in FBI files linking Ray to Marcello's associate, Johnny Roselli. Finally, this book explains why Ray, while fleeing to Canada the day after killing Dr. King in Memphis, made a 400-plus mile detour south to Atlanta, where he contacted Spake to get help from Miltier. In 1979, the last congressional committee to investigate the murders of JFK and Dr. King, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, concluded, quote, that Traficante, like Marcello, had the motive, means, and opportunity to assassinate President Kennedy, end of quote from the congressional report. The HSCA had been created in the wake of Roselli's sensational murder, but the HSCA was unable to establish direct evidence of Marcello's complicity. And the same was true for Traficante and Roselli, because the CIA, FBI, and other federal agencies withheld so many relevant files. The HSCA, headed by civil rights figure Louis Stokes, also concluded there was a likelihood of conspiracy in the assassination of Dr. King, and that financial gain was James Earl Ray's primary motivation. But they were unable to determine who had paid Ray or how the conspiracy had worked because the FBI and other agencies had hid critical files. With the help of more than two dozen associates of John and Robert Kennedy, 
backed up by thousands of recently released documents at the National Archives, many of which are quoted here for the first time. Legacy tells the full story denied to Congress and the American people, legacy of secrecy. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold ask for their free gold protection guide, and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Scott in Mission, Kansas. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. So I wanted to talk about the uh, 2020 presidential race and mm -hmm. how women and people of color seem to have been stepping up and wanting to take that mantle. Yep. We just saw Gillibrand, Gabbard, and Warrens say they want to run for president. And then there was Julian Castro, first Hispanic man to run. Yep. And was there an Asian man before Andrew Yang? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. All right. But, you know, to me, I see like a relationship between that and how our culture has been evolving to include more people of color in leading roles Agreed. and women. And, you know, if you look at superhero movies, how many female-led superhero movies can you think of? Well, it's exploding now. I mean, you know, it's... Yes. So, and superheroes who are people of color as well, you know, men yeah. or women. Wonder I agree, women. Scott, I th and I think it's a really good and healthy thing. If you go back and you look at that rat study that we were reporting on a couple of weeks ago here on this program, that black rats and white rats, these lab rats, when the black rats or the white rats were exclusively raised with their own kind, they tended not mm -hmm. to save the other kind when they were in trouble. But when they were raised in mixed groups where there were both black and white rat pups, all nursing off rat mom and they grew up together, mm -hmm. then they would save rats regardless of their race or their color, their fur color. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true with human beings. I think that, you know, we're mammals, we're not immune to these things. And the more that we see in our media and in our schools and in our institutions and the cop on the beat and everything else, the more that we see the diversity that is our society, that is our culture, that is the fundamental strength of America, the more accepting of diversity we become, particularly the older white people who yeah. grew up in a highly segregated society and therefore yeah. are, are carrying some of those old white rat things, you know. Yeah, I think it's a big deal. And <laughs> It's pretty white here in Kansas. So. Yeah, yeah, well, it is in a lot of parts of the United States. And But I really think that this is the solution to the whole thing is to have something like that going on. Thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Anyhow, impeachment has always been the right remedy. Let's talk about this. Now it may become politically plausible. This is Kerry Elveld. Donald Trump has already committed an impeachable offense. Kerry Elveld is writing for the Daily Kos, according to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. This is not the Mueller investigation. This is not Robert Mueller. Donald Trump has already committed an impeachable offense. This is according to federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. In a December sentencing filing against Michael Cohen, they said that Cohen made two hush money payments to women, you know, basically Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels, to suppress the stories and, quote, thereby preventing them from influencing the 2016 election. That's a crime. It's not only a crime, it's also how Trump essentially lied his way into the White House. Which means that the election itself didn't have integrity. The election itself was illegitimate. And now we get this report that Michael Cohen was directed by Donald Trump to lie to Congress. And that it's not just Cohen's testimony, that there's documentary evidence of this. And multiple sources of documentary evidence that are in the possession of Mueller. If this is true, there's two impeachable offenses that we know about. Two that we could use to go after Donald Trump, to impeach Donald Trump. 
it seems to me like maybe a good idea to be talking about this and thinking about it. Um, this is uh, Lindsey Graham explained the overlapping parallels. He says Nixon cheated. He cheated the electoral system by concealing efforts of a political break-in and his people thought the other side deserved to be cheated. They thought his enemies deserved to be mistreated. Ladies and gentlemen, they were wrong. Today, Republicans with a small handful of Democrats will vote to impeach President Clinton. Oh, this is Lindsey Graham back in the 90s when he thought that if a president lies, he should be impeached. That Lindsey Graham. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. So once again, this is a 1998 speech on the floor of the Senate by Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Nixon cheated. He cheated the electoral system by concealing efforts of a political break-in, and his people thought the other side deserved to be cheated. They thought his enemies deserved to be mistreated. Ladies and gentlemen, they are wrong. Today, we will vote to impeach a president. Why? Because we believe he committed crimes resulting in cheating our legal system. We believe he lied under oath numerous times, that he tampered with evidence, that he conspired to present false testimony to a court of law. We believe he assaulted our legal system in every way. Lindsey Graham, speaking of Bill Clinton. Amazing. So where do we go with this? Jan in Seattle. Hey, Jan, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? May I just say something about Michael Cohen? Mm -hmm. I am very concerned for his safety. I hope he is squirreled away someplace safe because Donald Trump is threatening him. You're absolutely right. You know what Trump tweeted about Cohen's father-in-law. Yeah. Well, and look at what happened to this young Russian woman who was in Thailand, you know, doing these sex seminars or whatever. And she said that she had audio and video of Deripaska, the guy that the Republicans in the Senate, that Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham just voted to lift the sanctions on, uh, Mitch McConnell. She has video and audio of him talking with the Russian number two guy, the, the vice minister or whatever, and talking with three Americans who were speaking in English with him about the U.S. election. So she had 10 hours of this stuff. And when the news came out, she says, now she says she gave it all back to Deripaska. But, and then yeah. she tries to fly home to Belarus and the plane stops in Moscow to change planes and boom, she gets arrested. I don't think this woman's ever gonna see the light of day. In fact, I'm not sure that she'll no. survive. You don't take on Russian oligarchs like that with real evidence that might take them down without risking your life. Exactly. Look, just remember back what all the people surrounding Reagan who just, you know, disappeared somewhere, all had a... Yeah. Oh, oh that's the last had. chapter of Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. It lists all the people who mysteriously died in the Reagan administration when the news started to come out about the October Surprise, starting with Bill Casey, his campaign manager. It's an amazing story. So Trump is part of the Russian oligarchy. Be very afraid. You're right, Jan. Thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to us on Progressive Voices. Sharon in Sandstone, Minnesota. Hey, Sharon, what's on your mind today? The reason I'm calling today is I know there's been this debate over whether a president can be indicted or not, but on one of the talk shows, I don't recall who, someone who was a constitutional person said, if the founding fathers who were so concerned about some tyrant, you know, becoming a leader in the United States... Mm -hmm didn't want someone to be indicted, they would have put it in the Constitution. Yeah, I agree. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the president can't be indicted. And although it does provide for impeachment, that doesn't mean that indictment is not available. And 100% of the opinions saying that the president can't be indicted came out of White Houses, you know, out of Justice Departments attached to White Houses that were looking at the possibility of indictment. You know, specifically Nixon, Reagan, the elder Bush and Clinton. Those are the Justice Departments that have issued memos saying we don't think that it's appropriate to indict a president. Well, they were all serving presidents who had committed crimes and very straightforward stuff. So, yeah, I'm with you, Sharon. I know, Go ahead. I know when Trump was first elected, I got a Republican friend said, what do you think of this guy? And I said, I think he's going out in handcuffs. At least that's what I hope for. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Sharon, thank you. Bob Ney is on the line with us, uh, the author of Sideswipe, former uh, congressman from Ohio. He is with Talk Media News. And this report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. So what's happening in the world today? Well, today, of course, is a celebration of the life, the birthday of Martin Luther King. And uh, if 
people have not been to the King Center site, they really ought to. There's, uh, I, I think, an amazing description of Dr. King's life. And You're talking in D.C.? Yes. Yeah, and, but and Donald the, Trump only, yeah. and, and Mike Pence were literally were only there for two minutes. Oh, really? What did they, what did they miss? I mean, yeah, they showed up. He said his, his entire prepared remarks were, great day, beautiful day, isn't it? Thanks so much for being here. Nice to see you. Bye. Wow, and that's a shame. And then and Mike Pence apparently the, compared him to uh, Martin Luther King. Oh, he, yes, I saw that in the wall. Uh, I, I, I didn't carry that because I don't think it's a story I even wanted to carry, yeah. but, I, but I did see it. But, uh, yeah, it's a celebration. If you go online to the King Center, also, you, you'll see some re- really wonderful things to read about uh, his life. Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of walls, because we can't go a day without a wall, but uh, they're promoting the Trump allies uh, that the president go on a road show where he will, instead of saying, build the wall, will say, offer me a deal meaning to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck right. Schumer, offer me a deal. Right, as the bank robber said to the police over the bullhorn. Right. right. I, I've got these hostages. Offer me a deal. I'd like to start with pizzas and a helicopter. Right. Um, I think it'll wear out its welcome. I don't think it, uh, I think it already it's has. a good idea. It would, it would literally wear out, uh, yeah. I think, would wear out the welcome on the issue. Yeah. I mean, people, this is starting to fray, Tom, as you know, uh, I, I uh, called some people. I call them regular Earth people. They have no involvement in either political party, so I call them regular Earth people. Mm-hmm. And I called them today, asking them, "What do you think?" And they said, "You know that they think that for a multitude of reasons, this is starting to not be good." They were indifferent, you know, in the beginning. Right. And I think because of that, and the Internal Revenue Service and other things, <clears throat> there's a whole list of things that are going to start to kick in. By the way, you know, uh, food stamps the uh, f- funding of some of the, of the uh, federal uh, banking issues. There's a whole series federal of Federal courts? They're, they're going to yeah, shut down in five days? I mean, this, 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 is, this, this, I, this is the third time since Donald Trump became president that he shut down the government. It's the first time he's done it for a long period of time, but this is the third time he's done it. He seems to have come into office thinking that when Newt Gingrich started this whole thing of let's shut down the government, that it was just the coolest thing ever and that he wanted to be the guy who did it. And uh, it ain't working out as well as it did the first two times, it seems. Well, and yes, you know, I hear these comparisons. I was around for the previous shutdown in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. It was a whole different world, a whole different president, a whole different issue. Yeah. And that was a mutual blink, in a sense. And actually, the Senate under the Republicans, I remember the history of this, blinked first. But President Clinton, you know, kind of really rose to the challenge to say, okay, now where do we go? How do we sit down? It's it's an entirely different world. Yeah, there was compromise on both sides, or at least the appearance of it. Um, My concern, Bob, and, you know, as a a former member of Congress and and as a former Republican, I mean, you know, you you know how these guys think and how the base thinks. Um, It seems to me, this being the third shutdown that Trump has done in two years, that if the Democrats do give in to his hostage-taking, we're going to see shutdowns every six months. I mean, the next one will be in March when the debt ceiling has to be raised. Or am I, or do you think that I'm exaggerating the threat? No, I actually spoke about this in the morning shows that I do, you know, in the uh, New England area. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, you can look at different ways. Like I said, I go back to the Clinton shutdown where he won some things, we won some things, we had, you know, mutual interests, and, you know, the rest is history. And, and I look at, you know, what Boehner tried with you know, Obama uh, when President Obama was there. This is a different world now because... The way the president thinks, and you know how he thinks and how he acts and his aggressions and the deals, etc. And if, if you give him one, uh, he doesn't view it as giving in, he views it as, as weakness. So therefore, and originally, Tom, I honestly thought, well, the Democratic side can go from $1.5 billion to $2 billion, who cares, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. But they even rejected the DACA because if they give in... This won't be the end of it. It'll be viewed, just like dealing with the Chinese, it'll be viewed as weakness. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, there's a fascinating piece today in the New York Times, Bob, about how in business, this is what Trump did. He, he just, 
he never negotiated to have win-wins. He does. He detests the idea of win-win. It has to be Donald Trump wins and the other side gets not just crushed into the ground, but gets their face crushed into the ground and everybody stands around and points at them. And then they don't get paid on top of that. They, his, his stiffing federal workers, TSA workers and stuff, is identical to the way he stiffed the contractors who worked for him, many of whom to this day never got paid. Uh, you know, it just, it's like this is how he does business. Expect two more years of it. It reminds me of the Attila the Hun quote uh, that we used to talk about in campaigns where it's not enough to defeat my opponent, I have to destroy them. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, in this case, and I wouldn't have normally thought, I, you know, I tended to come from an era uh, you know, where you have certain compromises, right? But on this one, if they give in, it will not be the end of it. It'll be another issue and another issue and another issue. And he'll, you know, utilize with this with the base. Because right now, you know, he's getting, obviously, the bloggers. and Right. Well, who will be, the, the, the people who will be super empowered if the Democrats give in are Rush Limbaugh and Laura Ingram and, True. and you know, and, and, and Ann Coulter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bob Nay, uh, talkmedianews.com. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bob is also the author of the book Sideswiped, which is a real brilliant insight into how things really work in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. I hope you have a wonderful Martin Luther King holiday. Spend some time reading his work, digging into his life, and sharing it with your friends. And we'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your head. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.